You're listening to the Blood Sucking Feminists, your number one Kiwi Scottish podcast focused on the three F's fangs, feminism, and fangirling. I'm Catherine. And I'm Keely. And you're listening to episode 28 Undead Science or Ultraviolet. So I'm pretty sure a lot of you hadn't heard of Ultraviolet until we mentioned it, which is a shame because honestly, it's got Idris Elba as a vampire hunter. Done. Immediately best thing ever. Yeah, this is one of those shows that's kind of in the the bastion of you know, really old school kind of 90s cult shows in Britain. It only lasted six episodes. It's now almost 20 years old, which is a scary thing to think about. There's a bunch of people in it that you recognise who will eventually turn up in bigger things. Jack Davenport's in this. Stephen Moyer is in this as another vampire who's fucking shit up. And (laughs) Idris Elba is in it. And baby-faced Idris Elba before he became Idris Elba the icon. Yeah. Although he does help cancel the vampire apocalypse. So, you know... When I had I had already seen this show, but it was a long time ago. Um, it, for a long time, it was also just very hard to watch. Just you know, to get finding it, you know. They don't tend to put shows that last uh, six episodes, you know, on quite wide distribution. And then I found a copy of it in a charity shop for a pound, which was a great steal. And then we watched it and remembered this show is bleak. The show is very very bleak. And now it's on YouTube, like everything else. Well, you know, you, when you find something this good, you've got to share it with the world. I don't know if Channel 4 or that, you know, picky about the copyright on this, just because it is so little known, except for Idris Elba now. Um, but it's also, uh, I think, very much ahead of its time. Nowadays, there are so many vampire stories where they don't actually call them vampires, and that's like their really cool, edgy twist. And this one did it in 1998. And this is one similar in a vein to something like Richard Matheson's I Am Legend, where there's a very scientific approach to vampires, even though they're never called vampires. But all of the markers of traditional vampirism that we think of are present, but they are just sort of given a more... Well, in this case, there's sort of like a vaguely pseudo-military approach to how these vampires are killed. So, for instance, uh, the way to get rid of Code Fives, which is their code for, you know, there are vampires on the run, is that they have uh, UV bullets, for instance, uh, carbon bullets. They have gas grenades with concentrated compounds of garlic. They have to use UV filters on cameras and such to find them because they don't show up on cameras in the same way that they don't show up on mirrors. So it plays in many ways more like a kind of a traditional kind of cop drama, sort of like, you know, like The Bell, I think is the big example for Britain. This very (laughs) grounded, very gritty kind of cop show that there just happens to have vampires in it. Yeah, it definitely felt quite a lot like a British crime drama I happened to catch on Sky TV that's a couple of years old. Like, uh, I'm trying to think of saying, it's like, uh, I guess, um, 
new tricks or something, you know? It's a bunch of people with their own thing, except they're not solving old crimes, they're dealing with vampires and Stephen Moyer being a suck-ass. Seriously, never trust Stephen Moyer as a vampire, ever. Yeah, but at least here his accent is decipherable. Because it's his actual accent. And his voice is about six octaves higher than it is in True Blood. <laughs> and he's actually talking rather than just, you know, sucking, etc. But yeah, if you if you go into this expecting, like, Idris Elba, badass action vampire hunter, it's gonna take a while. I mean, he is a badass ex-military guy, but... It's really slow pacing, really, really slow cop drama. And that's about it for a long time. I can see a lot of people being modern vampire fans, or, med- or rather casual fans, being turned off by it. Because it really takes its time getting to where it wants to go. Once it does, it has some really interesting concepts and little art, neat little arcs. But other than that, it's just, it, it, it takes a while to really get going. It's acting as if it's as immortal as the vampires. It's got all the time in the world. That recording. Okay, sorry. There we go. Start again. Sorry, I hadn't started okay. recording. Okay. Okay. Thank God I caught it in a few seconds. <laughs> yeah, go for it. So the setup for this show is kind of similar to a lot of cop dramas you see of the you know, the one policeman who gets roped in to, by the rogue organization or the, the super secret spies. Here, it's getting roped into vampire hunting. So the detective, Michael Caulfield, who's played by Jack Davenport, who you've probably seen in Pirates of the Caribbean, finds out that his best friend, Stephen Moyer, fucking shit up again, has gone missing the night before his wedding. And he's marrying sort of the this not so secret love of Michael's life, which sort of rubs the salt into the wound as well. He investigates his friend's disappearance and finds out that he's being hunted by this organization, and then he later finds out actually that his friend is lying and that the vampire hunters are hunting him, but it's not because that, you know, they're the bad guys. It's because, you know, there's really no um, middle ground for between humans and vampires and they have to be killed. So he joins this new department with Susanna Harker, Philip Quast, and of course Idris Elba and investigate vampire-related activity over the course of these six episodes. So that takes forms in some really interesting ways. There is um, a woman who may be pregnant with a vampire fetus. There is um, a strange outbreak of a vampiric style disease at a school um, there is strange um, experimentation going on with um, bl- sickle, cell sickle cell anemia and uh, blood testing as well and it is uh, as you can imagine it's also one of those shows where all the plot strands come together and it goes it's all the same story um, so that's mostly, but, I mean, even just sort of talking about it in that way does make it sound a lot more sort of quick paced than it is. It's a it's a slow burner, even for six episodes, and there is a lot going on. You can't say that there isn't, but it is in that very sort of muted approach that you see in a lot of uh, British dramas, especially ones where they don't have any money. <laughs> <laughs> 
Yeah, imagine what this would have looked like with a CSI type budget. Yeah, it's. I mean, they do get around it in really effective ways. Times where these vampires are hit by the carbon bullets, uh, they explode in a flash of light. So most of the time, you don't actually directly see the burst. But the couple times that you do see it, and then you see there's one scene where you see a vampire rematerialize, and oh bless, it's very 1998. Yeah, they they wish they could do the billeth rising from the blood thing. But I gotta say, there's some really interesting angles on the mythos here. Like, how do you take something very sort of traditionally fantastical, put it in the context of science, and then put it in the context of crime? So, you know, the you know, nobody's gonna be carrying around wooden stakes anymore, but carbon bullets will do the job. Uh you can't walk around with strands of garlic around your neck, but you can use the uh, Allison compound, which is what's derived from garlic, and then you can fire gas grenades into buildings. And that whole thing of science with the vampires ties into the whole thing, not just as an idea of we're we're we, as the story writers and audience, are treating vampires as some sort of scientific creature, but the vampires themselves are having very scientific and research-based attitudes towards everything. Because you talked about vampire outbreak in the school, the testing on sickle cell anemia, the um, woman who may be pregnant with a vampire, and it all ties back to vampire science. Like, the it's artificial insemination it's breeding new strains of a virus to create an outbreak it's look at this the pre-true blood creation of synthetic blood the vampires are adapting and using science and the hunters are doing the same in response but they still have their ties and religion who's the leader of the vampire hunters oh, some He's a priest. religious guy so despite all the talk yeah. <laughs> Though sometimes you see him wandering around, you'd kind of forget that because he doesn't look like what you'd imagine a vampire hunting priest would look like. There's a distinct lack a lot of times of obvious religious paraphernalia. Well, when we do see the well, when we do see the religious presence, they are very quick to mention that it, it's. The reactions that vampires have to that is psychosomatic. That is not rooted inherently in vampiric nature. So there is an episode where uh, an outbreak of this sort of vampire-related disease takes place at a school, and it's a Catholic school, where the teachers are, you know, are priests, and religion is a very big part of it. And there's a scene where they sort of test one of the kids who may have been infected with this sort of pseudo vampire strain and they just put, put a copy of the book of common prayer in front of him and it freaks him out to shit and previously we saw a, a student freak the hell out because the priest was coming to talk to him and when we say freak the hell out that is an interesting episode to look at in the context of what we now know of the epidemic of child abuse in the catholic church and in catholic institutions and they even acknowledge it in the episode uh where the way of covering up what happened is by uh, basically framing the dead priest as a pedophile because they'd rather that be considered the reason for his death than vampire strain of meningitis in a Catholic school. 
Yeah, this is a real that that episode in particular. I think we'll delve into more later. I mean, the fact that the the main sort of theme of that episode is pedophilia is once again bleak. Yeah, it's really just stark. Just because there is a pedophile character who does show up in the episode, and it doesn't want you to be sympathetic, but it wants you to know who he is if that makes sense yeah it is um an interesting take on the material in the idea of hey if you were in what different aspects would this impact your life and one of the ways is well if you were a pedophile the idea of a child who never ages and is never going to rat you out is probably really f- thrilling to, to be quite you know frank about it um, and we see in the context of this episode actually it's kind of detrimental for this guy because he knows he's not really a child the kid is probably older than he is and also he doesn't show up on video and that's one of the ways he gets his kicks is by filming it and watching it back so then he just sees himself and it doesn't quite work that way so the show is actually pretty um, unflinching in its approach. Uh, there's also an episode where we meet a woman whose husband has a quote-unquote died and she had kept his um, sperm frozen so that one day she could maybe get pregnant. And it turns out she may be pregnant with a vampire fetus, but there's a scene where she goes for some what is supposed to be independent advice about what to do and she has actually found her way into uh, like a crisis support centre which is headed by a pro-life woman. And that made and me so uncomfortable, uh, that whole scene. Yeah, because you can just imagine that actually happening, you know, she, she actually says straight up, I just wanted some independent advice. And then the guilt tripping starts and it's and really hard to watch. Yeah, and then I I did sort of juggle at the the unintention of it, but the fact that the woman kept praying over, basically being so forward with the religion and eventually praying over her caused the vampire miscarriage. I mean, it sort of suggests that that was what happened, isn't it? Well, yeah. It's like, well done, pro-life lady. Well done. I wonder how much of that was a dig at that. That was it. It just felt very specific. Yeah. Um, I mean, it totally made sense. I mean, the thing is, we have Father Pierce obviously as a main character, but you would forget that he is a father or a priest throughout, you know, pretty much the entire run of the show if people didn't occasionally point it out, because he's obviously not dressed in the vestments, he's not, you know, praying over people. He is actually, in many ways, the most pragmatic of the bunch. Yeah, he is the one who makes the decision to frame the other priest, his friend, as a pedophile rather than get in the way of the mission. Which was not what I was expecting out of that character. Even knowing him after four episodes. I would have thought, you know, that might have been the line. You know, does his religious loyalty win out over the side of his religious loyalty? Or and I'm like, no, no, straight up did it. Yeah, I was the one that was interesting about that episode is that's where they you know you, they send in the woman to deal with it as well. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 
It's like, oh, wait, weird women things and in the women. Um, we also have the um, a really fascinating uh, story that is very specific to race as well. There is a character who has been experimented on by the vampires um, in order to create a, a, synth- a strain of synthetic blood. Uh, you know, so no humans required. But, no, but they've been testing on people from the developing areas, you know, the, the developing world where there isn't as much healthcare, uh, especially if you're poor. Um, and I've been testing on a black man with sickle cell anemia and claiming that they can cure that. Sickle cell anemia is something that is primarily um, a condition that uh, black people suffer from. As pointed out by Idris Elba's character as well, when somebody asks, what is sickle cell anemia? And he admits that he had been tested for it when he was in the army. That's his, you know, his character's background is that he was um, serving in the army and his basically entire squad were taken down by the sort of vampires. Yeah, he gets the very masculine, uh, I lost people to vampires, now I hunt them story. Whereas uh, Angie, the, the Angie March, the doctor, she has the very female version, the very femi- feminine version of they killed my husband and child. That's why I do this situation. He had to kill his squad because they all turned to vampires and she had to watch her husband and child die. So there's a very definite line between you know the feminine story and the masculine story in this. Which is kind of a shame because I would have loved a badass lady soldier, but... Mm. She also has the most 90s haircut. <laughs> yeah, like, I think I've seen that haircut on several district attorneys in the Law & Order franchise. Yeah, you can you can date a Law & Order franchise by Mariska Hargitay's haircut. <laughs> it's like a very short Stephanie March haircut. It's very severe and in place, which I think is also part of the character, but... Um, yeah, it, it really works for her, but <laughs> it's like, hello, 90s, because everyone has the same bob. You know, that, that 90s bob of different lengths. There is no other haircut for women in this. Oh, except for a really short version on the pregnant lady. That's it, really. That's it. Only one haircut. And fairs are only like four or five haircuts on women now in TV, so. True. We should be grateful that there were enough women to showcase the four or five different styles of bob. Basically. Well, I think we should talk about, uh, since we're talking about her anyway, let's talk about Angie Marsh, the um, the woman on the team. She's played by Susanna Harker, who is legit the descendant of the guy that Jonathan Harker is based on. So, nice synergy there, show. Like, that's amazing. Like, was that... I don't even know if that was deliberate, but that's, like, one of my favourite facts we've ever... I've ever learned doing this podcast. Like, somebody decided to cast a descendant of actual Harker in a vampire show. Awesome. So Angie is very much the 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 cold, rash, well, not cold, but she's very cool, uh, irrational lady scientist that you see in a lot of things. She's not quite as, say, uh, aggressive and emotional and assertive as probably... I guess her American counterpart of counterpart of uh, Samantha Carter in Stargate, but she's definitely in. You, if you saw her, you would know her mold. 
Yeah, I mean, the um, sort of driving force, particularly between Vaughn and Angie, is they are part of this team because they've seen firsthand the damage it causes and that, that are living with that pain in a lot of ways, although they're processing it differently. We actually don't necessarily get a lot of Vaughn's backstory. We know it, but it, we don't really see it, how it impacts him as much as we see how Angie's husband and child dying impact her. So we actually get to see Angie with her surviving daughter, for instance. Uh, the protective um, sort of bubble that she's trying to keep her in, the security on their house, that kind of thing. We don't really get as much of that with Vaughn, partly because it's Idris Elba, and I imagine everyone thought that, you know... This was before it became Idris Elba's before, so that's a problem. Uh, but we do see... Actually, we'll get to Vaughn and you know the one aspect where we really do see him crumble. Uh, but with Angie, she is um, a scientist herself. She um, a- analyzes vampires from that level, and her husband was also a scientist and was um, turned into a vampire. And basically, the team had to kill him as a result. They were trying to gather him for their um, um, for their own scientific purposes. Um, so with Angie, we have this is the, the this is the thing that defines her from the series. When she goes to talk to the pregnant lady who may or may not have a vampire fetus in her, she is very open about the fact that her husband died in a similar way as what she says. The women, uh, what well, turns out actually, it's they are identical way. Both women tell kind of tell the world or they believe that their husbands were um, committed suicide, and then it's like nope, vampires. But that's still something that leaves an immense amount of trauma, yeah. particularly for Angie. It's that episode that I almost felt like there was a shift. Before, she was very much, you know, the scientist lady. But once that happened, she really did feel more like the, what, the more of the core of the show, or what should have been the core of the show, as opposed to uh, Michael and his still trying to get over the fact he wants his dead best friend's girl. Yeah, I will say that subplot doesn't work for me at all. Um, partly because I don't think he has any chemistry with <coughs> her at all. Um, and I find her like sort of emotional whiplash to be exhausting. But yeah, I, I wonder if there was a draft of this script where Angie is the centre of it and they thought, well, we may need to go for the male lead because it's 1998 and we don't know shit. Yeah, I was... As I was watching it, I was mentally reordering it. So cutting out the whole uh, Michael and Jack and everything, it was literally about a woman whose husband and child were killed by vampires, thus revealing the interest in her, what she was doing as research, unknowingly what she was doing towards vampire research, and thus being inducted into this organisation. And thus having to deal with her grief over her husband versus growing attract- attraction to Idris Elba. I'm sorry, husband. But we don't get to see that being act- acted on, which I think is partly because it's six episodes and it's a slow burner. But I also wonder if, you know, this is 1998. Would there have been a problem with an interracial sexual relationship on TV? Honestly, we still have issues with that today. True. I think we've kind of moved backwards in a lot of this area, actually. Yeah, I'm maybe if it had been longer, because it was definitely there by the last couple of episodes. But a lot of time was being taken up with this dumbass Michael, Jack, and Kirsty 
plot. I'm like, I keep forgetting. Like, how how was Francis involved? The other lady, how how was she, how was she known? Who is this? You know, what's her involvement? Why is she showing up and doing stuff? <laughs> it was it, that sort of plot line was just it was off on its own thing, uh, and I don't know what it was doing over there. But the actual best plot of stuff was the stuff involving Angie and Vaughn and the and Father Pierce. Otherwise, because it, it we, honestly, whenever there was the Michael and Kirsty stuff, I started shooting out. Yeah. I mean, partly you don't buy it because you don't see any chemistry between the two of them, but I also just found Kirsty to be kind of... I think they try to make her go beyond the sort of, you know, determined girlfriend slash ex-girlfriend slash love interest kind of area. You know, you do see her get very frustrated with the fact that this guy who's supposed to be her friend and the only one who knows what happened to her fiancé will not talk to her so she does start investigating herself. Um, I just found like the emotional whiplash they kept putting us through with her to be kind of exhausting and I didn't think that the payoff was that interesting for her. Yeah. I mean, I completely understand the need for an audience surrogate type character. You know, the person who's being introduced to the cast and the world and things like that. But... I don't think it worked in this respect. I think Angie would have made a much more interesting uh, point of view, or at least a character we follow. I mean, if you're going to do that, bring her in as well as him, or just bring her in, you know, like, there are other options. But I think that's also a very late 90s beat, you know? I think if you'd done that now, there would have been a lot more pushback of people saying, well, why does she have to be kind of, you know, skulking from the sidelines? Like, imagine if they'd read, if they'd done it where Angie was the one being brought in and that Frances character was like her, her friend who was, you know, investigating why her friend was suddenly isolating herself, you know, why she was, she suddenly changed jobs or just started worrying about that her friend's grieving and not handling this right and then following on to something is really not quite right here. Or I wish that they'd actually had the payoff that, yeah, she did become a vampire. Wouldn't that have been a really interesting take as well? Yeah, like a lot of things, there was a lot of wasted potential being, or a potential being shoved aside for a very mess, bog-standard plotline of dude discovers stuff, does dude stuff. I mean, I understand at the time Jack Davenport was the bigger name because he'd just done This Life, which was kind of this, like, (laughs) major, you know, critically acclaimed hit in the UK, um, and I actually wouldn't have minded if it had just been him. I mean, separate from the fact that he has to have this sort of, you know, you know, the girl that got away aspect, because that just instantly makes it so skulky, you know, like oh, you're still moping yeah. over her, really? Yeah, I mean, his his angst was like. My friend turned out to be an asshole and a vampire. Yes, I killed him, but now I'm lying to his girlfriend, who I've been secretly in love with the entire time. It's like, really, really? I do not need that plot line of love, actually, but with vampires. But then the way that it pays off for him, like, why does he bring out the dead fiance? Like, because that doesn't pay off. The, the the fiance is not interested in his, you know in her anymore or really in either of them he's just kind of 
Oh, well, thanks. I'm alive now. I'm going to jump in the Thames. I mean, just as well he's undead, because that would just end in death anyway. <laughs> it's the oh shit, we need to end this series. Whereas, had they gone with Angie as the main character, they would could have actually brought back the husband and had her actually deal with the premise that was set up in the in vitro episode. I mean, the problem here is, I think, that the show wasn't highly rated enough for them to get a second season. Um, but they also put it on a really massive cliffhanger, which I think we'll discuss later. But I would think it would be very interesting to discuss Vaughn. Uh, we see an episode where um, where we're deal- he deals with the, um, the, the experimentation <coughs> on the guy with sickle cell. And he ends up being attacked and dumped in a room with four... Uh, electronically controlled coffins that are set to automatically open in, I think it's five minutes. And you see him sort of half quietly come to the realisation that actually they're not going to make it in time. His team are not going to make it in time to find him. And he toys with shooting himself because he knows what's coming. And it's a really pretty tough scene to watch. Uh, spoiler alert, he doesn't yeah, die. Was- he finds a way to, to get out. But it's this watching him like slumped against the door, shoving the gun in his mouth and against his um, chin, and you know, working up the nerve to do it. Because it's you know, it's not a great end, but it's probably still preferable to what will happen to him if he becomes a vampire, especially someone as someone who has been working to kill these vampires for most of his career. It's that soldier mentality of don't let the enemy take me. Because he's already seen what happens when the enemy takes his entire squadron. Yep. Um, Like, in that moment, I was really worried that they were going to do it. Like, you know, because you see, this is not big famous Idris Elba. Uh, This is just some guy, I was like, oh shit, they're going to kill the only black character in the show. Yeah, I had that feeling. I was like, crap, because they need to make room for the white guy to take over, you know, fill the void, become the action hero. I'm like, thank God they didn't do that. There's actually not much action in this fool. I mean, one, I think they didn't have the budget for it, but we do see a couple SWAT team moments. We see a little bit of running, um, but there's no real, you know, like there's no scenes of combat necessarily. A lot of the, the really dark stuff comes almost exclusively through dialogue or really interesting tricks with the camera because they don't show up on camera so there is a moment where they open up a coffin and one of the vampires inside who has been an environmental scientist who they kind of had joined their team and is played by Corin Redgrave but you see everyone looking at the coffin you um, and you see in the reflection of the mirror but you don't see him as a result until the very last second and that's very striking. Yeah, there's some really good camera tricks and mirror tricks. Um, but if you were expecting really great uh, special effects and action moments, this is not the thing you're looking for. If you're looking for really quiet, touching moments, like when, um, and especially some subversions of them, like when it looked like. It just, uh, Vaughn was going to call Angie and tell her that he loves her because it's very clearly meant to be that phone call. It's the I'm dying, I love you phone call. And he just stays silent on the end and sort of almost kisses the phone as he shuts it. 
mean, it, that was very true to the character, but I'm like, no, damn it, damn it. Now you're in her house. Now kiss her. Now kiss her. God damn it. I cared way more about those two than anybody else. I will admit it. How often is that the case, Phil, where you're just so much more interested in the, um, in the supporting cast than the star? Um, and I like Jack Davenport. He's one of my like, uh, he, like one of the more underappreciated posh boys of British uh, cinema and theatre. He's married to Michelle Gomez, aka Missy from Doctor Who, and he can be very good and stuff. I just found that here he's kind of laden down with the sheer mopiness of the character, which feels very authentic to this kind of, you know, old school mold of a PI or a detective cynical, hard-bitten, sort of world-weary, seen-it-all until he hasn't. Um, but, you know, because that's such a stock of of detective shows and police dramas and procedurals, even when you get one that has such a fascinating twist on it like this, there's still part of you that's still just, you know, we've already seen this guy, guys, come on. Yeah, go, let's go back to the lady scientists and the military dude. Especially considering they're so much more cohesive together as characters, whereas it's like, I mean, I understand why they brought Michael in, because he'd already seen some shit and proven himself to be pretty decent, but it's like, come on, this guy? You're putting so much trust in this guy? It's that, as real as that, you know where where, um, Michael's allegiances lie, he's not a traitor or anything like that. But you, you also ultimately get the feeling, are you just ruled by your dick? Yeah, he, he's way too emotional for the rest of the cast. You know, even if they are driven by revenge or hatred or whatever, they still manage to keep things in control, whereas Michael's all over the place. He was going to become somebody's friend or think uh, overly worry about something too much and get everyone killed, whereas they the others would get shit done. Even if it hurts them, like when Father Pierce had to frame his friend as a pedophile because that was what he had to do. Or when Angie saw that the vampire husband was actually sounding really sincere, I imagine a lot of other people would have let the husband take the wife. But she doesn't. She kills him and lets the woman die. Honestly, I was not expecting that. Were you, were you, oh, you, you've already seen it, so you can't really say that. Yeah, I mean, I'd already seen it, but I was hoping a little more... You know, just faded memories, and I was hoping more for sort of a a more realistically grounded emotional resonance from Michael, because he spends the entire time being sullen, but he acts really over emotional, but he just doesn't show it. Um, so it doesn't ring true in that aspect. Yeah. Very much a look. I know you feel guilty about killing the guy and then moving in on his girlfriend, but geez, deal with it. And that's the thing is, I think that is supposed to be like a big emotional kicker with the series finale, but there's a bigger problem to deal with at the time, which is impending nuclear winter. Yeah, they need to focus on cancelling the vampire apocalypse. (laughs) That's the second time I've made that joke, and yet you're only laughing this time. You've earned it the second time. Yeah, that's true. That's true. I've polish, I'm polishing the joke and the delivery of it. He's like a good comedian. You've got to work on it, you know? 
I will say the nuclear the nuclear winter plot is actually a really fascinating uh, and, and intensely bleak way to end the show. The basic idea is that everything we've seen the vampires doing up to this point, manufacturing synthetic blood, uh, and investigating the possibility of vampire pregnancy, um, a, a way to spread the disease that isn't through um, you know contamination of biting, and we find out that basically their plan has actually nothing to do with what the original original would be. Their original thought was they're planning to enslave humanity. They're not. They're planning on getting rid of them altogether by um, engineering nuclear winter and then a plague so that it's always dark and then there are no humans to run to fuck everything up because they just drink synthetic blood and can reproduce via live birth. I don't get sadly don't get to see any more of that because this is where the show ends, but I admire the fact that they commit to a really dark ending and they don't try and dress up as, you know, there is hope and we'll fight another day. Everyone's kind of like, no, we're fucked. So I would have been really fascinated to see where this goes in the second season. Because, um, like, wouldn't you want to see how you prevent nuclear winter with the vampires? But we also have interesting elements where we do see, like, the day-to-day living of a vampire in this world. Um, because... They obviously can't go out in the daytime, but they will still do things like uh, drive around with the tinted windows. There's a scene in the the second episode where one vampire is in the car and he overtakes a biker and the biker happens to have major road rage and goes at him with like a lead pipe at his car, breaks the glass and basically scalds the guy. And thus producing road rage on the other part and it's like, ugh. Men. Yeah, so basically if he had been a safe driver, the entire vampire plan would have basically remained uncovered. You know, un- undercover. So, well done, dude. Yeah, it's like... That's the sound of clapping. What I find really interesting is that particular vampire character who is completely scalded and is essentially like a walking around piece of crispy chicken um he's in pain constantly because vampires can't um you know use anesthetic or painkillers their system won't process it so he's now in constant agony is he is he healing i'm trying to remember if he's actually i think healing. he's healing but very slowly but like there's no there's no way you know solace from the pain he just goes on to be a bigger asshole because if he's in pain, everyone else has got to be in pain. But that also opens up a really interesting aspect of what happens to these, you know, what kind of pain are these vampires in when they are in, like, the dust state? So vampires can be, cannot actually be 100% killed in this world. They can be blown up, basically, and then they are reduced to kind of a red powder. But they have to collect the red powder and store it in, like, essentially in, like, a containment unit which is like a giant fancy metal fridge until they can find a way to actually completely get rid of the threat because they can, you know, if their blood is added to the this kind of powder, it will then... When, honestly, when they said, you know, they can regenerate, I'm like, yeah, you got to add vampire blood to that. Of course you do. Because I, I am really surprised that they didn't think, seem to think that that was a possibility. It's in the blood. Come on, guys. Read yourself some vampire fanfiction or something. <laughs> Honestly, that would solve a lot of problems in these universes if vampires 
vampire fiction does exist, just read all the vampire AUs. You'll be set. Yeah, but they don't even talk about them as vampires in that aspect. So, but they they, they clearly have yeah, some it's level their whole, you of know, like they they clearly have some level of like grounding and understanding that they are vampires, even if they don't call them that. But what's interesting is there's no moment where anyone kind of like laughs and then says, "Oh, you mean like vampires?" or cracks a joke about fangs or like there's no wink or nod here. This is all taken one hundred percent seriously. Yeah, this is, you know, another example of not using the Z word, as they say on TV <laughs> Tropes. They're code fives. Maybe leeches. It's like when you're watching The Walking Dead and they don't call them zombies. They're called, like, walkers. Or I've just played season three of The Walking Dead and they call them muertos. You know, they don't ever use the Z word or Z word, depending on whether you're British, English, or American. which seems like going to an awful lot more effort than just calling them vampires. Yeah, honestly, I would just love a thing. It's like, yeah, so vampires are real. Some of the fictions right, some of the fictions wrong, and then that's a they're actually just called vampires. But that's the thing is, I would love a moment in like The Walking Dead where someone just kind of like says, look, can we just call a spade a spade and admit that these are zombies now? It's been a while. I I think we can safely say that they're (laughs) they're zombies. But I kind of like that this plays it totally 100% seriously because, I mean, it's a commitment that you don't usually see. The, the weight that the material asks for. I think when you're going to tell a story like this and then you're going to insert things like pedophilia and abortion and sickle cell anemia, the, you know, you have a, a duty to do it seriously. Yeah, I think they got that tone really right. I just think a few of the angles regarding character choices didn't quite work out. Namely, uh, Michael and goddammit Stephen Moore and the the, the the abandoned at the altar lady. Also, I admit when reading the uh, the about section or the, the summary, I really thought Stephen Moyer's character was going to be a lot more important considering he's like the second character mentioned. Yeah, it's not like he was a huge star at the time either. You know, this is, you know, before True Blood, obviously by quite some time. Uh, I don't think he'd really been in anything major at that one time. He is in Quills, which is my favourite movie of all time, but that won't be for another couple of years. So he's mostly just an actor who's doing, you know, bit parts on TV, as you do. Yeah, this was, like, many, many years before he showed up on a a lot of things. But I I do wonder if the summaries we're reading now have been rewritten to reflect his more importance as an actor. Like, you know... Says, you know, refers to his best friend Jack has gone missing that before his wedding. Jack's disappearance. Jack has become a vampire. You know, I imagine a lot of other situations it would have been. Upon learning his best friend has become a vampire, his, you know, he, he, they wouldn't name him or go into great depth if he was only going <laughs> to survive. You know, what, you, you don't dis- don't you disrespect Mister Anna Paquin? Isn't he like an honorary New Zealander now because of this? That is true. Does he not get, like, special entry into the club for this now? He can be our meat raffle. (laughs) That will never not stop being funny for you. Nope, it's still brilliant. (laughs) And New Zealand is like, yeah, meat raffle. It's a raffle where you win meat. 
How does that not make sense to you guys? There is an interesting political aspect to a lot of this as well. I mean, how many times have we seen a vampire story where one of the vampires says, you know, we're just like everyone else. Don't we deserve the same rights? Why aren't the rights of minorities protected? And at no point does anyone fire back with, because you fucking kill and eat people? Yeah, although, to be fair, in this show, they're more likely to fire back with those carbon bullets. A few of them try the whole... But we just want to be people. And everyone's like, nope. But the thing is as well is it's absolutely clear in the context of this show that no, they don't. You know, you never really doubt that for a moment. There is a moment when um, uh, ex, uh, the ex-fiancé, uh, Kirsty, kind, you know, begins a relationship with this journalist who she's sort of, you know, this like, you know, vaguely conspiracy theory-esque gumshoe journalist to try and find out what happened to uh, Michael and to her former fiancé and she does end up beginning a relationship with him not realising that he is a vampire of what they kind of do the red herring of well maybe she's a vampire too Um, and there is sort of a hint of well maybe he does just want to be like everyone else but you don't really buy it yeah, and then he promptly Stephen Moyer fucks it up. Again. Honestly, okay. Stephen Moyer is just going to become a verb. <laughs> to Stephen Moyer. We're totally going to make that happen. Yeah, it's the vampire version of a Monica. Now there's a reference. But there is also a really... There are some moments in the film that are very striking visually in a way that is very evocative of... Of political struggle. So uh, the vampire played by Corin Redgrave, who is basically being kept in uh, in custody, um, they give him blood to drink, and he doesn't. He goes on hunger strike, and he smears it across the the glass. Um, that image is very uh, evocative of um, political hunger strike, of um, especially a lot of the. Um, the political prisoners under the IR that were from the IRA in Ireland, um, and as it, having a Redgrave do that as well, you know, who is one of you know from the most famous like far left wing family in um, in British um, British culture, uh, did not feel accidental to me. Uh, but it's also worth noting that the hunger strike does do him in. Which I'd kind of forgotten about and was a little surprised by. Although Idris Elba sort of compares it to... Well, he see, Vaughan compares it to stuff that he's seen as a soldier. I'm not sure if he's... can't remember exactly if he explicitly compares it to smearing feces on the, on the wall. But it's definitely that level of disdain. Yeah, if you're but familiar with him, some of these stories animal. of um, the political prisoners of the IRA... You know, there are huge amounts of stories of them not only going on hunger strike, but smearing their walls and shit. So I think that that was very deliberate. I mean, the way that they go about a lot of this feels very militaristic. I mean, this is, remember, this is um, a Vatican-organized group that it's working in conjunction with the British government, and they run it like it's the SAS. Yeah, that's like the government has taken over from the Vatican and brought with it the military side of things, like the modern military as opposed to an inquisition, which was, as they say, 
part of the same situation. So I mean, I I wonder if that's what was planned for a second season is you know going more into this operating like a you know like a war like a more active war because the situation as it is in the first season is more of a cold war sort of situation where um they know something's going on everyone knows that it's going on and they don't um but you you can't really make the first strike so to speak but now the 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 game is at hand so i i wish we could have gotten more of that to be honest um, yeah, because by the time you get to that sixth episode as well, it is built up into something really fascinating and strange and complex and, you know, really committed to being utterly pessimistic. It's relentless from that, which nowadays is a little more common on TV. Like we're in this sort of prestige TV era where prestige means it has to be miserable as fuck. But at the time, I imagine this was a much, you know, stranger prospect. I mean, the miserable and the gloom and the darkness really worked here because everything is just unflinchingly dark. More, not in the sense that, you know, look, everyone's dying, it's all horrible, things like that. But just more like there's no veil in between you and what's actually happening. Yeah, and it's also pretty bloodless. I mean, there are a couple moments of... Um, where you see sort of like seeping from the neck or you see um, the one guy who gets charred to a crisp and you kind of see his like burnt hands but actually all things considered it's pretty free of that kind of like visceral violence if this was, no they did actually plan to remake it in America and they got a pilot together and Idris Elba played the same role but you imagine that if this was done now and this was on HBO or Showtime or Stars or something this would be really violent, you know. This would probably be True Blood levels. What about the level of nudity? Would they be like True Blood levels of nudity? I don't know. I mean, sex isn't really part of this. I imagine maybe they would um, do more with the sort of like, you know, unrequited love element more. Maybe they (coughs) would fuck. But I don't know. Um, I, I would find that just kind of boring. I like the sort of the steeliness of this. Yeah, it's very cold and clinical, and it works. Instead of it, you know, lot so many vampire things are like blood and passion and violence, whereas this is the cold of the morgue in comparison. The lights are low. Uh, everything's cold everything's dead and I like that coldness um, oh yeah I actually like I the loved it too. color palette of this as well because obviously the show's called Ultraviolet um, and you see the way that a UV light plays its part in you know finding vampires for instance I, I liked that incorporation of that but obviously you know it would be cool to see what this thing would have looked like with a bigger budget but I kind of admire it being you know a little it has its own small a little, sh- a little edge you know edgier you know it's got its own small intimacies like there's many scenes of just two people talking it's not like constant fight scenes or uh things like that. it's people in a laboratory it's people discussing uh being informed about whether or not to have an abortion 
it's a man on his own waiting for possible death. Yeah, that 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 is a moustache. <laughs> so, as is the tradition, we do have a moment where we discuss how we would have improved this thing. But I think we covered a good chunk of that with our idea of how Angie really should have been the centre of the show. I mean, I don't mind Jack Davenport as an actor. And obviously, he was probably one of the more bigger names until the Redgrave came along. But I think they could have given him something a bit more meaty than dude who discovers vampires and also wants to fuck his best friend's girl. Yeah, I think that kind of falls into the trap of um, this um, assumed necessity of the audience surrogate, which I think maybe 20 years ago, and I can't believe this shit was almost 20 years ago, was something that we wanted. But nowadays, it just feels kind of just tired. Uh, so that would be the first thing I would change. Um, but I would love to have seen... Um, I would love to have seen them just continue to be really bleak. So I would love to have seen a second season just where we get to see either the fight to stop Nuclear Winter or Nuclear Winter actually taking effect. Yeah, that that's definitely HBO budget. I mean, can you imagine it on the cheap BBC budget it would have got? No, thank you. Okay. I mean, and I mean, there are some really cheap BBC special effects shows, and they have their charm. This would not have charm. It 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 would have needed the HBO, you know, it needed like the full cinematic epicness of like the first season of The Walking Dead. That sort of thing. Not. This is the leftovers from Doctor Who with some outfits you've probably seen on other TV shows. Oh, look, here's a quarry. So honestly, I think that as it stands, it's generally really worth your time. Well, it's one thing, it's six episodes. Yep. It is very ahead of its time in a way that I think this kind of thing feels a lot more common now than it did in 1998. But if you're really into... Um, <coughs> if you like your stories bleak, if you like your Idris Elba stoic... If you like your, um, your Idris Elba in general, <laughs> if you like your discomforting um, social themes with a dash of neck biting, although there's not actually that much neck biting in this, um, give this a go. If, I mean, if it's on YouTube, you really have nothing to lose. Yeah, I mean, it does take a while to get going, but really, you know, give it a chance to get through the first, I think the first two episodes aren't the most exciting things. It's once they get to the, uh, I think it's the third episode where they have the pregnancy storyline that, again, when Angie comes to the forefront, that's when it really gets interesting and starts sinking its teeth into the whole concept. Um, the one thing I do wonder what it would have been like after, if they'd done it after sort of science-based TV shows following CSI and everything came along with that, you know, with all these shows with science fiction science sort of thing coming along, how that would have been received with the heavier emphasis on science and more of an understanding that the audience could understand science or at least follow along with what they were go going for. I wonder how it, well, that would have looked. I think what that would have ended up looking like... Would there have been a greater need? I think what that would have ended up looking like See would be it. I Am Legend. But, like, I Am Legend done properly. Not that terrible movie. <laughs> oh, God, are we going to watch that movie? Just jinxed point. it now. 
Don't worry, we've got Eclipse to get through first. Oh, God. So, as we sort of hinted, our next episode is going to be Eclipse by Stephanie uh, Meyer. Uh, we uh, think, look, looking back on it, we should have done it for this month's episode because it did come out, I think, in August 2017. It did come out in August 2007, but frankly, it's not. This is not going to be something that we're going to look forward to. My Twitter mentions have only just stopped blowing up after pointing out that Twilight is more than ten years old, and that it's more than a whole wide generation away. I guess people didn't really re- realize that Twilight, that anyone who read Twilight as a teen when it came out, is not a teenager anymore. People seemed quite shocked at that fact. I'm like, yeah, it's 12 years old. It's nearly a teenager itself. You don't have to watch Eclipse or read it. If you don't want to, we won't make you. It would be nice to have other people along the, for the ride, but obviously we cannot force you. And we suggest alcohol as well. Uh, you can... Uh, if you want to suggest an episode to us, if you've got an idea or something you'd really like us to cover, please do um, message us on Twitter and suggest it. We like hearing from you guys when we do sporadically tweet. You can reach us on our website, bloodsuckingfeminist.com. We're on Twitter at bloodsuckingfem. I believe we have a Facebook page. Just Google bloodsuckingfeminist. And if you need any uh, help, if you have any questions, you can just Drop us a line at any of those things. Also at our email, fangmail at bloodsuckingfeminist.com. That's fangmail with a G. Because we are terrible and we love our puns, just like other vampires. So until then, watch out in the mirror behind you. <laughs>